Turn with me again to uh, Luke 13, if you will. Luke 13. We'll look at verses 18 and 19 today. When I was a little kid, you could buy these little packets of some kind of magical rocks which you put in water and then they would grow into some magnificent colorful crystal garden. Well I remember the first time I tried this just a little kid what great expectations I had. I couldn't wait to see it work. To my small eyes the pictures on the package were dazzling. So uh, home I went and uh, found my old fish bowl, the former home of countless unfortunate goldfish. Put the right amount of water in and uh, dumped the magical rocks into the bowl and began to watch carefully. Watch as nothing happened. Maybe I did it wrong. Nope, that's the right amount of water. Uh, is it growing? Maybe it's growing. No, it's really not. What's the matter with this stuff? I think I got gypped. I suspect that's how Jesus' disciples felt. He came announcing this glorious kingdom of heaven now coming to the earth. And they were filled with expectation and left everything and follow him. And then... Nothing really happened. Actually, it was worse than nothing. The very leaders of this kingdom that they expected to grow rejected him. What's gone wrong here? So in our text this morning, Jesus tells them and us a a little parable. Let me read it very brief. Verse 18, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Not much of a parable. One sentence. But two things I think that the Lord is saying to us here. Let me share with you. First is this. Christ grows his kingdom out of nothing. Christ grows his kingdom out of nothing. You know, sometimes I think that smallness, seeming insignificance and obscurity, is one of the most difficult things that God's people face. I I mean, here we are even here this morning claiming that we have the ultimate truth in Jesus. That he is the way, the truth, the life, the only way. Claiming that we have words from God. And who are we? (laughs) This little group of people? No numbers, no money, no power. No influence. It sounds so absurd, does it not? For we live in a success-oriented culture. And that success is measured in ways which, frankly, don't favor most little churches like ours. 
So how are we to understand the situation? What are we to think? Well, Jesus says, well, consider the mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed on the face of the earth. We know that now. But in the culture to which Jesus spoke, the mustard seed was generally spoken of in kind of proverbial terms as the ultimate example of something minute. The impressive thing, however, about the mustard seed is not just its smallness, but the contrasting largeness of the plant that grows from it. Now, I've seen some mustard growing around uh, western Washington, and it's not really that impressive. But the variety of mustard seed growing in the area where Jesus spoke this parable springs from a tiny seed and rises to a height of 10 to 12 feet, and its, uh, its branches get, uh, stems get rigid and provide uh, a, a, a foliage for birds to uh, land in and make nests in, uh, just like a, a tree would, which is exactly what Jesus described. Such is the kingdom of heaven. Christ's kingdom, which seems so insignificant, will grow to dominate the whole earth. And Christ grows this kingdom out of virtually nothing. Now, actually, Jesus does not paint an entirely new picture in this parable. In fact, this picture of a kingdom being like a giant plant which grows until it's able to accommodate the birds of the air in its branches. This picture is found not only here, but it's found in three other places in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 31, Egypt is seen as a giant tree, a cedar tree, with branches stretching out over all the other nations. But Ezekiel prophesied that because of Pharaoh's haughtiness and self-exaltation, God would bring down that kingdom. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream about his kingdom. And there, too, the kingdom was seen as a giant tree spreading its dominion and protection over all the nations. But Daniel explained that God was revealing he was going to bring Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom down because of Nebuchadnezzar's refusal to acknowledge God. And then the third place, in Ezekiel 17, there's another picture that's a lot like our parable. Here God takes a tiny sprig and causes it to grow into a mighty tree which provides protection and dominion over all, this, all its surroundings. This is a picture of the promised kingdom of God to come. Though by Ezekiel's time, the kingdom had been totally dismantled. There, there was no kingdom of Israel. Then, of course, fourthly, we have Jesus' parable in our text about the mustard seed growing into a huge plant, hosting all the birds of the air. So let's follow up those four biblical pictures of national trees, if you will. Whatever happened to them? Well, interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh were high and exalted kings to whom many paid homage. They were world powers of the day. Powers on whom many nations depended, whom many nations feared. On the other hand, over here is Daniel and Ezekiel making prophecies about these great kings. And they were nobody. They were exiles. They were part of the spoils of war. They were young men from Israel who were brought to Babylon when Israel was overrun and destroyed. (laughs) Who were they? Daniel and Ezekiel, to predict 
the downfall of the two greatest empires on earth. It seemed rather absurd. But as you probably know, Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to a madman. Babylon fell to the Persians. Egypt was brought down just as Ezekiel had prophesied. The prophecies of these two nobodies, these young men, which seemed so insignificant, proved true. Beware of the absurdity of insignificance. Likewise, Ezekiel's prophecy, the the third prophecy in the Old Testament, that God's kingdom would be like a mighty overarching cedar, that seemed rather absurd. You remember, as I just said, in Ezekiel's day, there was no kingdom left. Israel had been totally decimated. The city of Jerusalem had been burned to the ground. The temple had been destroyed. People had been deported by the thousands, the tens of thousands. Ezekiel himself was a slave in Babylon. The days of Israel's history, the days of Israel's rule were history. And then Jesus comes saying that this is the kingdom he's introducing, that which Ezekiel was talking about. And not only will he grow his kingdom into this mighty tree over in overarching many nations, like Ezekiel described, he will grow it out of nothing. A teeny nighty little mustard seed. Once again, it sounds rather absurd. Jesus doesn't even have a throne. Nobody even calls him king. He has no citizenry. He has no army. He holds no political office. He has no money. He has received no endorsements from influential people. And yet here he is saying, his kingdom will dominate the whole earth. It will in effect fulfill Ezekiel's ancient prophecy. Oh, and yet it gets even more absurd because the leaders of that nation then rejected him. His closest followers ended up abandoning him. He was crucified and buried dead. His claims were not only absurd, they were impossible. Oh, but don't be afraid of the absurdity of insignificance. Jesus promised to build his kingdom out of absolutely nothing, and that's exactly what he has done. The striking reality of it has been captured in this familiar little poem that I'm sure you've all seen sometime in your life called One Life. It goes like this. He was born in a stable in an obscure village. From there he traveled less than 200 miles. He never won an election. He never went to college. He never owned a home. He never had a lot of money. He became an itinerant preacher, but popular opinion turned against him. He was betrayed by a close friend. His other friends ran away. He was unjustly condemned to death and crucified on a cross with common thieves on a hill overlooking the town dump. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed 
grave. Now, 20 centuries have come and gone. Empires have risen and fallen. Mighty armies have marched and powerful rulers have reigned. Yet no one has affected men as much as he. He is the central figure of the human race. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And folks, his kingdom continues to grow to this very day. Citizens of his kingdom are found in every corner of the earth, speaking thousands of different languages. This morning they gather in tiny huts and homes in modest assembly halls out in the field, in the woods, and in great cathedrals to sing his praise and to hear his word to them and affirm anew that their allegiance is to him more than any nation or ruler or anything on earth. Sometimes they meet openly, sometimes secretly, sometimes at the cost of their lives. But all attempts to curtail their gatherings have proved fruitless over the centuries. Directly or indirectly, Christ's kingdom is influencing the course of every nation on the face of the earth. Jesus might have sounded absurd, but he was not mistaken. He has grown his mighty kingdom out of nothing. And he isn't finished. Yet, the knowledge of him will eventually cover the earth like the waters of the sea, we're told. One day he will return in glory, and on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And the kingdom he has grown out of nothing will be the only kingdom on earth. Dear folks, this has profound implications for you and me. Christ growing his kingdom out of nothing. For this morning, you may be nothing. You may be a nobody, a loser, a failure, washed up, hopeless. Your life may be such a wreck that your family has given up, that, that you've given up. But God is still pleased to make something out of nothing out of a nothing like you or me. He has already done everything that's necessary to save us. He lived the perfect life you could not live. He died the debt to pay the debt that you could not pay. Took the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. So now God is pleased to deal with us as if we were his son, to substitute Jesus for us. He accepts us because we come trust in Jesus, not ourselves. He declares us to be righteous when we stop trusting how righteous we can be and trust the Savior instead. He loves us like he loves his own son and treats us as his own children. He forgives our sins and he gives us eternal life. and He adopts us into his, into his family and he tells us, call me Papa. So you see, if God has allowed you to get to the end of your rope, to get to the bottom of the barrel, he has done so that you would be willing to come to him unconditionally with no pride of self, no agenda of your own, no rival commitments, but simple wholehearted surrender to the Lord Jesus. For Christ is growing his great kingdom out of nothings like you and like me who've given up on ourselves and run to Jesus for mercy.
Oh, but this great truth is not just about individuals. It applies to every congregation. The apostle Paul wrote to the people in Corinth, the believers in Corinth. He wrote, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. (laughs) Sounds like Wiser Lake Chapel, doesn't it? Not many wise, not many noble, not many rich or famous or influential here. For 50 years, this, child, this church has been the poor stepchild of the real churches. And your pastor's no better. No Ivy League credentials, no connections, no clout. What we have here is nothing but a little handful of mustard seeds, isn't it? But here God has been pleased to build his kingdom out of such nothingness to use us way beyond any influence we might have expected to have and all our weaknesses all the foibles of this little motley collection of folks only guarantees that Christ will get the glory for he obviously started with nothing oh never forget God is not looking for people with great abilities. He's looking for availability. He's not looking for people with great wealth. He simply wants people to give all they have. He does not demand that we have a great intellect. He only asks us to love him with our whole mind. He's not looking for people from influential families. He wants people who find their identity above everything else in being his child. This morning I call you to stand in awe of such a great king and give yourself to him. For Christ Jesus is building his mighty kingdom and he is building it out of nothing. So how does he do that? Well, that brings us very briefly to our second point. The power is in the promise. The power is in the promise. A good magician will do some trick and leave you speechless, but he will never tell you how he did it. It must always remain a secret, for his power is in your inability to figure it out. But the Lord tells us clearly how he does his work. Oh, he doesn't make much of a point of it in this particular parable, although it's here. But throughout the scripture, there's no secret about it. The power is in the promise in the word that he has spoken, in the gospel that he has given. Daniel and Ezekiel explain it clearly in those passages that are clear, that are parallel to this text. In Ezekiel 31 we read, Thus saith the Lord. Three times we read that in that little passage. In Daniel 4 we read, This is the decree which the Most High has issued. And again in Ezekiel 17, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do it. The power is in the promise 
of God's word. Likewise, in Matthew 13, where we find this same little parallel, it is preceded by a, another parable, which makes that point clear, that the kingdom will come by the sowing of seed. And what is that seed? Well, Jesus himself explains. It is the word of God. The power is in the promise of God. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in several places. In Romans 1, he writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says it again, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power is in the gospel promise. And so we go out to face the world filled with seemingly hopeless realities, sin and death and crime and rebellion and hopelessness and helplessness and people in despair and a world falling apart and a world being misused and people being misused. And we go out to face it all with what? Words. (laughs) Words. Words, that's all. But the words we have are nothing less than the word of the living God. The promise of grace. The good news of the gospel. And through that seed, that word, God changes lives. Changes churches. Calls into existence things that did not exist. He grows his mighty kingdom until it dominates the earth. For the power is in his promise, in his word. You see, dear people, without his word, we have nothing. Without the message of his grace, we have nothing. I can't change hearts, can you? You may be smarter than me, but can any of us figure out how to solve the world's problems? The sin that permeates everything? We can't even keep our own hearts fervent, alive toward God. So we need to give attention to God's word, the promise, the gospel. Saturate our minds with it, meditate on it until we think just like God thinks. And then speak it and proclaim it and pass it on. People don't need to know how smart you are. They need to know God's truth. They need to know what God said. They need to hear the hope of the the promise of the gospel. Teach our children. You can't always control what your children do. Not forever. They need transformed hearts, but you can't transform their heart. The power of God to transform hearts, though, is in this promise of his word. And so we go sowing the mustard seed of God's word. And as we go, we go with this promise from the Lord. Let me read it from Isaiah 55. My word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, the Lord says, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God grows his great kingdom out of nothing by the seed of the promise of his word.
Oh, and my magic crystals left disappointingly soaking in the fishbowl. I gave up on them in unbelief. I concluded it was never going to happen. I went out to play and I went on to bed, having learned a valuable lesson that promises don't always come true. But in the morning, what to my wondering eyes should appear but a fishbowl full of magic, graceful, stunning, mysterious crystals in all kinds of colors, formed not by my skill, not by my clever manipulation, not even by my faith, but by the power of the seed planted in the fishbowl. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, are in a, we live in a culture that uh, prizes that which is impressive and extravagant, big and loud, and bigger than life. And so it's hard for us to listen to you sometimes when you promise extraordinary things coming out of virtually nothing. When you tell us of the power of your word, the power of the gospel, which seems so simple, we can explain it in a sentence to a three-year-old. Oh Lord, may we not fall into the trap of the absurdity of insignificance, but believe what you say and continue to plant seed and to delight in what you grow, even here, even in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.